Man, 40 people come to know the Lord this past weekend. Isn't that, that's absolutely insane. That's incredible. Man, people's eternity was changed this last weekend when you thought it was just a simple Christmas service. But 40 people gave their life to Christ. That, that makes everything we do worth it. Man, what a great year it's been. Uh, guys, like he said, my name is Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. And today it's a little bit different. It's a little bit stripped down. We're getting rid of all the fluff and the ex- excess. And we're calling it CPC Unplugged. We've done it now for a few years. I'm going to apologize for a couple things real quick. Number one, my voice is, is shot. And so we're going to do the best we can. I'm not going through puberty. We're going to do the best we can. The louder I get, the better it gets. So I'll probably be really loud today. Number two, because most of the staff was off this week, we won't have message notes as normal. Uh, you'll have some... You'll have some blank lines so you can jot down a few notes of things that we're going to talk about. And the key today will be the Bible, believe it or not. It's going to be the Bible, and we're going to go through 18 passages. And so if you see the size of our message notes, there's probably not enough room to put 18 passages on this. So what we did is we put a little QR code at the top for those that will to scan that. You can have all of those Bible verses right now. And if you can wait later, they're also, will be online. If you want them later, you can just simply reach out to the church and we'll make sure to get them to you. We're going to jump in because we got to make a round trip through the scriptures. And the title of this one is the Lamb of God. The way it's going to start off, you're going to wonder why in the world is it about it. But we're going to start out talking about this thing right here. This is what? It's a gift. We just came out of Christmas, right? And that gifts are a primary part of most of our family traditions, right? We give things. But what's interesting about gifts? In and of itself, it's just a box with paper and a ribbon, right? And a bow on top. It doesn't do much good just sitting under your tree. It has to be received. It has to be opened. It has to be inspected, unfolded, unpacked. You have to dig into it a little bit to get the full use out of it. And that's the importance of gifts. And what we're going to talk about today is God gave us four gifts to every one of us. The first gift God gave us was Jesus. We just celebrated that this past week. We call it Christmas. God gave. You read that in John 3, 16. We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. A favorite word in that whole thing is whosoever. Aren't you thankful to be counted among the whosoevers? Because if it would have been the Romans, the Hebrews, the rich, the poor, the white, the black, any group of people, but it wasn't. It was the whomsoevers. And thankfully, God includes me amongst the whomsoever. And that includes all of you. The second gift God gave us was the Holy Spirit. God didn't just leave us here all alone to meander on our own. He doesn't sit up on his holy hill and bark out orders or sit around waiting for us to mess up so he can come down and smash us. No, he chose to live within us. He chose for those who are his to reside inside of us. The same spirit lives within you, if you are a Christian, if you are of him, that was in Peter, Paul, James, John, Mark, Luke, all of them. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead 
that same spirit that was in those men and women of God that we read about, that same one, no more, no less, is in you as well. The third gift God gave was the church. In the church, God had no backup plan. <laughs> You're it. God's plan from the very beginning was that his children, his people, his church were going to be how we, how he reached the world with his message of his grace and of his love. You're it. There is no backup plan. You and I, we are the church and we are the plan God has to reach the world. And the fourth one, the fourth present that we will unpack a little bit more than the rest that we'll spend most of our time on. The fourth gift to us is the Bible. God gave us the Bible. And the Bible, just like any other gift, just like Jesus, it has to be received. Just like the church, you have to unpack it. You gotta do more than just let it sit on your, on your, uh, your, on your stand next to your bed. It has to do more than sit on a table in your living room. It has to do more than just hang out in your phone if you use an app or a pad. It has to do more than that. It has to be even more than a simple Bible study. It really needs to be more than your simple daily devotional. It needs to be consumed. It needs to be unpacked. It needs to be received and understood for what it is because there is so much power and so much of God in it. That's the cool thing about it. Why would we not want to pour ourselves into? Because that's really today what I want you to capture. Because some things I, we can't teach. They can't be taught. They have to be caught, right? Some things I want you to capture and, and receive the passion for the scriptures, have a passion to know more because the Bible is this interesting thing. And in it, there are so many threads throughout the tapestry that we call the Bible. All through it, things are linked together and it's amazing to watch it unfold. And a lot of times we take simple terms and we just, we just kind of brush by them. We just kind of pass on by and don't think anything about it. And today we're going to take one of those terms, one of those words, we're going to unpack it a little bit. We're not going to hit everything about it because we'd be here for two years. But we're going to unpack it a little bit. And that's simply the Lamb of God. And to come to understand the Lamb of God, I think most of us think we kind of know who that is. Even if you've been in church for a while, you've heard it said a million times. And I guarantee you, most of you go, I know who that is. Possibly. But why do you? Do you really we're going to find out. And to find out, we're going to jump all the way to the very end of the Bible. All the way. <laughs> Revelation 20. About as far as you get. This, John, the, John is uh, the, uh, the apostle. By this point, is an old man on the island of Patmos. And he's having visions. And in John 20... He, is, uh, he sees in front of him this thing we call in theology, the eschaton. And what does that mean? That means the end of divine things. From that word, we have the word eschatology, which is the study of end things. And so he sees this picture of the end and he's writing it all down. And we'll pick up and read Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, 
and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Here comes the important part. If, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we could dive into this for a really, really long time. We don't have time. We could talk about the mysteries of, of heaven and hell and judgment, but that's not the key here. The key I want you to learn as you're studying scripture is to find something that maybe stands out to you. And for me, I remember the first time I really started opening up the Bible after being an atheist most of my life. I remember going through here and seeing this book of life. And like, it was curious to me because whenever you look at that word book, this will help you later. That word book is biblios in Greek. And in Greek, that word can be really anything but a book. It, they did have books in that era of time, but they were very rare. They were only the elite of the elite had a book, an actual book, they sewed them together. Books really weren't a thing until the late 1400s. Uh, you can translate biblios nine times out of 10 as scroll, which would make way more sense for the, the Hebrew people of that time. And so we're, we had this picture of the Lamb's book of life. And what we know, or the book of life, and what we know is that something really bad is going to happen to those who aren't in it. So you need to be found in this book of life. And to figure out a little bit more about it, we jump down to Revelation 21. Now, Revelation 21, verse 27 is towards the end, the beginning, 90% of that is talking about the new heaven and the new earth. And John again is writing about the things he saw that were not allowed or allowed into this heaven. And it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So now we know who owns the book. We know who we must know to know to be in the book. We know a little bit more. So now we know there's a book of life and we know that it's owned by the lamb. And so to discover who the lamb is, we're at the very, very end of this thing. That's literally the very end of the book of the Bible. We're gonna have to jump all the way back to the very, very, very beginning, all the way, way back to the garden. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. You're going to see a thread here. You're going to see this giant thread that's going to tie the story of the lamb from the old into the new, and we'll go all the way back to the revelation again. We're going to go 100 miles an hour, so I hope you got your listening ears on. Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Keyword, and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1 is referred to as a macro look at the story of God's creation, at the creation story. It's a macro, it's a big view, it's a big overarching look at it. Chapter two, which we're getting ready to jump into, is a micro view, it looks more at the details. And so when you dive a little deeper into what God was talking about there with the dominion, you find this in Genesis 2, 19. Now out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, so every animal, and every bird of the heavens, every bird, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. We pass through that a lot. We've read most of you. If you've read the Bible a few times, you've read that several times. That is very important for you to understand. What's important about the fact that Adam named the animals? I named my kids. You didn't name my kids. The hospital didn't name my kids. I named my kids. Who has authority over my kids? I do. My responsibility is my children. So I named them. God was never given a name by the Hebrews, by the Jews. Why? Because they didn't have dominion over him. They didn't have authority over him. They could not give him a name because they were subjected to him. Animals are not, on, in God's economy, animals have value, they just don't have the value of a human. And that's a picture that's being painted right now by this verse, because Adam named them, he has authority over them. He was to subdue it. His place is elevated compared to animals. Why does that matter? Genesis three, one through seven. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? This whole, verse is, this whole group of verses is amazing to me. It's like a riddle and that's the way the enemy works. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat it, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Key, what happened when Eve took of the fruit? Nothing. Then the eyes, and, oh, and she also, so she ate. And then she turned and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then their eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So guys, even Adam tried this game back in the very beginning. What did, who did Adam try to blame the problem on? He said, it's this woman that you gave me. Yeah, I've heard that many times in counseling sessions with, <laughs> with people. It's this woman. It's all her fault. Well, guess what? Eve took, the, yeah, she was the first to be deceived, but nothing happened. 
Nothing. The moment she handed it to Adam and Adam took of it, sin enters the world. And sin is an interesting thing. Because sin is more than what we, I think, it's missing the mark as how it's defined. But man, what really entered and what happened in the garden is we lost something that you can never, ever get back. In fact, no human will ever have it again. And that was innocence. Innocence was lost in the Garden of Eden. And once you squeeze that out of the tube, you can't get it back in. And so God's economy was put into place. And what we see is Adam began to do something that we all do. We blew it. We messed up. And we recognize it. But what do we do? Instead of going to him and asking for forgiveness, we start doing things to fix it, don't we? And what did he do? He reached down into the, and tried to get, gather some leaves and began to sew them together to cover their nakedness, the thing that, began, that became the symbol of their sin. He tried to hide their sin with his own works of his own hands. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to do it. Just like religion today, you can come to church every day the rest of your life. That's not what saves you. You can read your Bible every day. That's not what saves you. You can cover your sins all you want on your own, but they're not really covered. God did something in Genesis 3, verse 21, that shows you another step. And the Lord, gave, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So for you to get skins off something, what has to happen? Something had to die, correct? And he covered them in the blood of that animal. That animal was what in this situation? Completely innocent. Animals have innocence. They don't know right from wrong. They, they have innocence. So their innocence is what God chose. So something innocent had to die to pay for the sins of this man, of these people. In fact, for all of us, something innocent had to die. In this case, it was animals. In this case, the probability is high that it was a lamb. How do we know that? Genesis 4, 3 through 7, I believe. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. We see two types of offering here. One, Cain doing the same thing his dad did. He's a chip off the old block. He's like, I'll show God. I'll give God what I can do. I will earn God's approval. But what did Abel do? He brought to God something innocent. He brought a true sacrifice. And God found that sacrifice, what? He held it in high regard. This is, again, this is God's economy. What, is, what does that mean? Because Adam named the animals and man has authority over animals. And God unveils this throughout the rest of Genesis in this part of the story. And he teaches us and tells us that there is a promise that he will save us. But here's the, the key. Only an innocent man could save us. Only someone that was innocent and had no sin in her life could be the replacement for us and pay the price for my sins and your sins. And there was, unfortunately, there's no human that will ever be born from that point forward on that could ever do that. 
So God made a promise. And that promise was that he himself would bear that weight, that he himself would pay the price for something that he didn't do. He didn't tell us when. He didn't tell us much. He just said he promised he was going to do it. He stated that in Genesis 3. And then we move a little bit farther, and we begin to see this nation to begin to develop in the Scriptures. And we're talking 2,500 years past. We're going to jump around a little bit because we have to. So about 2,500 years begin to pass. And through a man named Abram, who became Abraham, he was pulled from the, called from the, a place called Ur. And from him, we see the development of a people, of a group of people in a nation called Israel, the Hebrew people. No idea why God chose them. No idea. The Bible really is not clear on that. But for whatever reason, he chose them. He selected them to be the tool through which his Messiah, that lamb that he promised, that, that promise of a savior would come. And, it, and, and so through them, he promised this thing. And so over time, the, as the nation of Israel was developing, they had a lot of problems, right? There was a lot of drama. If you read all of those years of, of scripture, the Bible, all through Genesis and Deuteronomy and everything as it goes in, you will see a ton, ton of drama between the people, the other tribes that were surrounding them, and a lot of problems between the people and God. And eventually, they find themselves in sin. And their sin eventually results in them being in chains and in bondage in a place called Egypt. And this is where a man named Moses comes about. And God uses Moses to show the people a, a foreshadow of things to come. He, he shows them that he's going to use a man to come into sin, a.k.a. Egypt, to bring them out of bondage, to bring them into the promise. He knew he was a foreshadow. He said, and so he tried to show the people what that looked like. And he gave instructions to Moses for them to do in order for them to be saved. And at this point, God is trying to rescue those people, to free those people from this bondage to, and, to, and to coerce and to ask the leaders of Israel or of, of uh, Egypt to release them is a man named Pharaoh. He refused. God used 10 tragic events in order to get his attention and to get him to release the people of Israel. And it was on the 10th one, the plague of death, that God again gives a foreshadow. And he gave a lot of instruction to Moses. And we're going to read a few of them in Exodus. Exodus 12.3, 12.5, and 12.7. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Exodus 12.5. Your lamb, this is key, your lamb shall be without blemish. 12.7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. There's a picture being drawn. Take a lamb. Sacrifice it. It's an innocent lamb. Lambs are innocent. They don't know right from wrong. Sacrifice. Kill that. Consume it. Take its blood. You put it on the doorposts of their houses. And when they did so, that represents your heart. If you had the blood of the lamb on your heart, death passes over. And that's exactly the foreshadow that what God showed through this event. He, he passed over the Hebrew households. And they did not perish, just like John 3.16 said, they did not perish. 
And to further take this point home, we could went through all of the different prophets, but one particular group of passages and one particular prophet stood out the most whenever, whenever we begin to read. And he paints this picture of this messianic promise, of this promise of a savior more than anyone else. And it's Isaiah. So we're going to jump forward another thousand years. Isaiah 53, three through seven. He was despised and rejected by men. What an amazing picture. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone, every one of us has turned, to his own way. And the Lord has laid him, laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened up not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Wow. That's a pretty clear picture. That's 700 years before Christ. 700 years he wrote that. The cool thing about Isaiah is, is back in the 1940s, we found a complete scroll of his. I'm not going to unroll it now, but it was, looked something like this now when they found it. They found it in a place called Qumran, around the Dead Sea. It's about two foot tall and about 25 feet wide when you open it up. It hangs in a, in a museum there in, the, in, the, in Israel. It's amazing to look at. What a picture. That's a picture of Jesus if you ever heard it. And we could go on and on through the prophets. But then the New Testament comes and we, we unfold another history of, of the Jewish people. And they had been ruled over by the Romans and, and the Syrians and other empires and things have shifted and changed to the point in time, the time has come that the promise is being made. The promise is going to be kept. And we get to a man named John the Baptist. He's a prophet of, like a prophet of old, much like Isaiah or Elijah. And he's standing out in the wilderness and he's telling everybody to begin to look for the kingdom of heaven because it is near and it is coming. And we read this in John 1:29. The next day, he, that would be John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb has a name, and that name is Jesus. And we learn a little bit more about the mission of Jesus as we read throughout the rest of the Gospels. In Luke 4, chapter 16, we see one of the more telltale signs of what he's going to do. And Jesus had just came through the, uh, the uh, temptation 
where he was fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and, he, and he's weak and he does and he, and he opposes the, the Satan and he overcomes Satan and the temptations of Satan. And eventually he's like, I'm done with this. And he goes to do what he always does. He goes home. And when he goes home, he goes and does the thing that he always did. He goes to worship. Luke 4, 16 says, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This, this is what was written there. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he anoint, anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, and, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And at that moment, he takes the scroll and he rolls it back up. He hands it to the attendant and he sits down. And then he st stands out, stares out all the people that are sitting there. And he says this, on this day, these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. Why is that interesting? Well, you're going to find out. Because if you're reading the Bible, if you don't already, if you see Jesus, you know, those things in red, quoting Isaiah, it's a really good idea. Check your cross-references, figure out what he's reading, and go back and read it. Because that thread will be revealed as you look farther into it. And what you find out is, this is where in our Bible, it's Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. And it's literally an exact quote. Almost. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where he wrote up the scroll. And he set it down. And he said, this is completed. But there is an issue here. Again, scroll. And whenever you unroll that thing, it won't stay. It's going to roll back. I bet you money. I told you. Follow me around. It was over 25 feet. And how the Jews or the Hebrew people wrote, they didn't have punctuation marks. They didn't have chapter verses. They didn't have any of that stuff, all right? That all came along many, over a thousand years later for us Western minds, to, we can compartmentalize because that's how we are. They, they saw things in images. And so at the very, very far bottom right-hand corner is where they would start with their first symbol. And from that corner, all through whole 25 feet, they would continue. And they go back and forth and back and forth. They're real small, right? Like we're talking small. Back and forth, thousands and thousands of symbols until they got to the very, 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 very end, upper left-hand corner. And that would be the end of that scroll. And right here, right almost to the end, is where Jesus stopped and cut the prophet off mid-sentence. Why in the world? Well, what does the rest of that sentence say? It's literally 12 characters in Hebrew. It says this, and the day of vengeance live our God. Why did he leave that off? He could have read it. We read the whole chapters. We read verses and chapters and stuff, don't we? He didn't because what did he say? He said, this is completed. Well, that hadn't been completed yet. Correct? Let's dig a little bit deeper. Jesus, at this point, towards the end, he had entered the city for the final time of Jerusalem. And when he did, 
He, his mission was, he knew what his mission was, and it was the cross. He was to be sacrificed, and he knew it. He'd been foretold, and God had showed it to him, and he knew what was going to happen. He entered the city of Jerusalem through the east gate, and that's important, because you know what the east gate was called by the Jews? The sheep gate. That's where the lambs were brought for sacrifice on Passover. So all the lambs were brought through that gate. And Jesus himself came through that gate. And this is where it gets interesting. He had to be found blameless. He had to be found spotless. You guys ever watch those goofy dog shows, Westminster kennel club shows. You ever seen those? Back in the old days, ESPN used to show it all the time when they didn't own the rights to everything else. And so I used to see it all the time when I was a kid. And they would take the little poodle or whatever it is, sit it up on a, on a, on a podium and inspect all the bones and, and look through its mouth and, and do all these weird things, inspecting it, holding it weird, very strange. Well, that's kind of what the priests did with these lambs when they brought them. They'd bring them a lamb and they would inspect it and look for a blemish. But these guys are looking for a pure breed dog. Well, the, we're, the priests were looking for a, un, a spot free and unblemished lamb. Because only an unblemished lamb, a spotless lamb, was worthy of sacrifice. Luke 23, 13 through 15. Jesus is arrested, brought before the council of Rome, so the government brought before the religious leaders of Jerusalem and brought before the people of Israel. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. But after further investigation, Pilate says this out loud, but I find no fault in this man. At that very moment, the lamb who came through the Eastern Gate was declared perfect, blameless, without blemish, ready for sacrifice. Peter reiterates this in 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, paid for, from the futile ways, futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Adam, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And we're all the way back to Revelation again. Revelation 5, 1 through 4. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, this is John the Apostle, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What a scene. Heartbreak, John on his face begging for somebody to be up in the scroll. He didn't know what it all meant. He didn't know what was in the scroll. He just knew it was a sad state that nobody was worthy. But then one of the elders in heaven reached down on John's shoulder and said, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root 
of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, John saw, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That scroll that Jesus opened in Luke in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And he closed it right before the last few words. Those last few words were the vengeance of God. Now, here's the end of that story. God started that conversation. Jesus opened that up and he started that sentence. There's going to come a time and it's in the future. Where Jesus himself at this time is going to take that scroll out of the right hand of God. The Lamb of God is going to open up that scroll. And he's going to pick up, pick up where he left off that we read in Luke. The days of vengeance of our God will begin. And the seals will be cracked open. And the wrath of God will begin to unfold on this place, on the entire earth. That's why it bears the question, do you know the Lamb? Do you know that you know, whether you're here in person or you're online, do you know that you know that you know that you're in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know? Everybody stand with me real quick. I'll get you out of here. If you don't know, without a shadow of a doubt, that the day you're standing in that great and terrible end time picture that we see written by John, and you're standing before that throne of God, if you don't know that you know that your name is in that book of life, the Lamb's book of life, if you don't know the Lamb and He doesn't know you, you're not in it. But God wants nothing more for each and every person who can hear my voice right now to be in that book. So we're going to say a simple prayer. There's going to be people up here that will pray with you. And whenever you leave, there'll be red, people holding red bags. And I want you to go find them. If you say this prayer and you mean it in your heart, I want you to go tell it to somebody. Because I want your name and your name and your name and your name. I want, when we go to heaven, I want to see your name written into heaven. Written into Lamb's book of life. I don't want you to experience, none of you to experience the wrath of God. It's coming. It's not a Burns sermon, but it's coming. We don't know when, we don't know how, but it's coming. Are you in the book of life? Father, I thank you. I thank you for these people in your presence. Lord, I ask that you pierce their hearts. I ask you to tell them to look at their lives and determine whether or not they know you. Do they know the Lamb of God? Have they been trying to live this world and this system out on their own, under their own pretext, under their own measures, in their own way? Or have they, or are they willing to give their life to you? That you, Jesus, and the work you did on a cross is the only way to find yourself. We must believe in that and trust in that, have faith in that. 
that you as the Lamb of God were sacrificed for my errors, for my sins, and for all of these people's sins, and for the sins of this entire world. And if you don't know that, I ask that you find someone today, that you prick their hearts, Father, and, they, and you encourage them to find someone today and pray a prayer of forgiveness and of salvation. And I give you thanks for that. And it's Jesus' name I pray. Amen.